Last night we lost power about 5.30. Uh, thankfully we regained it about 11.30 last night, but uh, between 5.30 and 11.30, uh, just sat there in the den, had the fireplace on, uh, take the chill off, and uh, it was dark except for the uh, light uh, from the fire. And I had my phone with me, I had my Bible on my phone, so I sat there to read my Bible and to, to ponder and to meditate. And uh, anyway, as beginning to do that, it seemed like my mind centered uh, very strongly on the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. So I'd like to speak to you about that this morning. Uh, the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel contains a parable that's perhaps the most um, familiar parable that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke during his ministry. It has to do with a, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And most people know this parable from the standpoint of why they refer to it as the prodigal son. But we'll say more about that later, Lord willing. But I think this part of the parable can be referred to also as the graciousness or the mercy of a very gracious father. It'd be just as well titled as that of the prodigal son. But before we get into that, uh, I'd like to give a little context as to why the Lord spake this to begin with. Uh, this chapter opens up by saying that the publicans and sinners drew nigh to the Lord Jesus Christ for to hear him. And then you have the Pharisees and the scribes observe this, and they react by saying that he receiveth sinners. Now, the Pharisees were that religious group that we know as a being very self-righteous within themselves. And scribes, they were the writers of that day. They were the ones who would copy the manuscripts and copy the scriptures down, etc. But the Pharisees and the scribes hung pretty tight together. They're oftentimes mentioned together, sometimes also along with the Sadducees. But the Pharisees was the largest group by far of the religious sects, you might say, during the lifetime and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. They also represent his most fierce opposition. They opposed Christ at every turn. They would try to ensnare him. They'd try to entrap him. They would stand off at a distance and observe things just like this here, where they observed that there were sinners and there were publicans that drew nigh to Christ. You know, the Bible speaks, especially in the Gospels of sinners. It's talking about a certain category of sinners. It's talking about sinners who are aware that they're sinners. They're talking about sensible sinners. And what makes a sinner sensible or an awareness that he is a sinner is not through teaching, it's not through preaching, it's not through reading or it being instructed because that will never change his heart. The person that's dead in trespassing sins will never be receptive to the things that I've just mentioned. But a person only sees himself to be a sinner, a true sinner, when the Lord has borne him from above, borne him of the Spirit of God, he then recognizes for the first time inwardly that that's exactly what he is, that he's a sinner. As I've said to you before, I can preach to you about sinners, I can preach to you about sin, but I cannot convince you in your heart that you're a sinner. I don't have the power to do that. There's not enough power in the gospel to do that with anybody. It takes the direct intervention of God Almighty when he borns with the Spirit of God to enable him to recognize that he's in that kind of condition. You see a contrast in the life of Saul of Tarsus, for example, in Acts chapter 9. 
Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road with letters of authority to go to Damascus to apprehend God's children for doing what you're doing here this morning, who were there to meet to worship God, then he would bring them back to Jerusalem, and the word that's used there is hailing them, which means dragging them, treating them very roughly, and bring them back and put them into prison. He was a fire-breathing fire dragon in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel church at that time. But the Lord struck him down the Damascus Road, and we see a dramatic change in his life. And we find where he writes in Romans chapter 7 about this experience. He says, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That's just simply saying when the commandment of life came, when Christ spake life to him, something revived inside of him that had been dormant as far as he was concerned, and that was sin. It was at this point that he came to the realization that he was a sinner. Now notice in 1 Timothy 1.15 when Paul writes about his life, he says, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He did not say I was a chief sinner in the past. He says I'm a chief sinner right now. Well, everybody doesn't feel that way. Certain people do and many do not. Well, when the Bible speaks about sinners in the lifetime of Christ, it's talking about people who had committed public sins, sins that people were aware of, sins that people uh, had observed and seen, but the Lord had dealt with them. They became penitent sinners. It's like Luke chapter 7, when there was, the Lord was invited, which is a rare, rare occurrence, but the Lord was invited to the household of a Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee. And while he was there to have a meal with the Pharisee, there was a woman that approached, and the Bible called her a sinner. And the Pharisee called her a sinner. We find this sinner wept greatly to the point where she was able to wash the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ with tears that came from her eyes. And then she would take the very glory that God has given to a woman, that is her hair, and she would wipe the feet of Christ dry. And this Pharisee looked upon her and said, if this man was who he said he was, he would not allow her to have touched him, for she is a sinner. Well, she was a sinner, the Bible says she was. Not only Simon said it, but the Bible says it. She was a sinner in a public sense. But see, the Pharisees, they didn't think they were sinners. They, what Christ came to do just kind of went over their head. When Christ spoke on the Sermon on the Mount, that you read in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we find where the Lord was teaching his disciples there how a person can sin inwardly, how you can transgress God's law with a thought in your mind, with a feeling within your heart. See, it's easier to sin than people think it is. The very thoughts of foolishness, the writer tells us, is sin. Now, you've probably already had one of them today. If you haven't, the day's not over. Don't give up. You'll have one before the day's over. You'll have some kind of foolish thought before the day is over. All unrighteousness is sin. But it just went right over the Pharisees. That's why the Lord said, Except your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees and Sadducees, ye shall no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. See, by nature we're unrighteous. And the only righteousness that we will ever have and is required to be in the presence of God is an imputed righteousness that Jesus Christ gave us when he hung upon the cross, legally speaking, when he took our sins and his own body to the tree of the cross, and his righteousness was imputed to us. 
our sins were imputed or transferred to him, and his righteousness was imputed or transferred unto us, you see. So the Pharisees, they wore their religion, as I've said in times past. Uh, in other words, they had their, their garments, we call them, uh, well, they had phylacteries on their garments. Their garments were from the neck all the way to the foot. And they had these little boxes, and they had verses of Scripture that they wrote Scripture on, put them in the boxes. And then they would stand on the street corners, and they would pray, and the Lord warned his disciples uh, not to do such things. He called those who'd done those things hypocrites. They were praying just to be heard of men. They were not burdened down, heavy laden with their sins. They, they didn't think they were sinners. So they opposed the very thing that Jesus Christ came into the world to do. Now, I know if I was to ask somebody today, well, why, why didn't Jesus come in the world? And you, no doubt you'd probably say, well, he came to save his people from their sins, and you would have the right answer. Matthew 1, 21, the angel tells Joseph this, to fear not to take unto Mary to be his wife. He recognized that she was with child. He also knew they had not been together intimately. So his only conclusion was that she must have been unfaithful. But that wasn't true. The angel says, Fear not to take unto Mary to be thy wife, for that which conceived of her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Well, there you are, plain black and white, right? You can't miss that. You've got to have somebody to help you to miss that. And then I've already quoted 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul says this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And that, that is correct. But let's notice something else. In Matthew 20 and 28, the Lord said, He says, I came not in the world to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give my life a ransom for many. Now we got something else the Lord came to do. He said, Think not I've come to be ministered unto. Now there were a few occasions when He was. I just mentioned one in Luke chapter 7, the sinner woman. Think not I've come to minister too, but to minister. That's why I came to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. But we look in Luke 5, 31 and 32. And the Lord said, They which are whole need not a physician, but they which are sick. He says, I've come not to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. And that's what the Lord said. He says, they which are whole need not a physician, but they were sick. Well, we understand that. You don't go to the doctor if you're feeling good. You only go to the doctor when you're not feeling well. When you feel like you're sick, you go to the doctor, see. But the Lord is not talking about a physical sickness here. He's talking about the sickness of sin. They which are whole, who see themselves not to be sinners, which were the Pharisees. Many of the statements that Christ made was focused entirely on the Pharisees. He says, they which are whole need not a physician, but they which are sick. He said, I've come not to call the righteous, that is the whole, but rather sinners, the sick, to repentance. That's why he came. The Pharisees just overlooked that. They were in opposition to the very thing that Jesus Christ came to do. See, the Pharisees were sinners like everybody else. But they just didn't realize it. They didn't feel it. They were not the sensible sinners that I've been trying to talk to you a little bit about here. Now, not everybody that was categorized as a sinner here had the same feeling as those that's under consideration. 
there were some who were just happy to be sinners. I mean, they, the Bible teaches us that man drinks iniquity like water. Like, just like water. So we see that the publicans who were tax collectors and the Jews in general did not like the publicans because they worked for the Roman government and they collected the taxes and which uh, they were you know, commissioned to do. But there were many dishonest publicans and they would collect more than they were supposed to and they'd give the Roman government what was required and they'd put the other in their pockets. But see, I'm talking about publicans like Zacchaeus. You've heard of Zacchaeus, right? Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus was a publican. He was a very rich publican. But the Lord came by one day. He heard he was going to come by. He ran down the street, which was highly unusual for somebody like that, a man who had an official position, as Zacchaeus did. He climbed up the sycamore tree to see Jesus because he was small of statue and he couldn't see over everybody. I commend him for that. He climbed up the sycamore tree, and lo and behold, Jesus stopped right at the base of the tree. <laughs> well, wasn't what Zacchaeus thought. Well, the Lord's going to talk to him. The Lord says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I must abide in thy house today. <laughs> Zacchaeus probably fell out of the tree. I think that's probably what I would have done. But anyway, Zacchaeus made haste. He got to his house, and he welcomed Christ into his house. And the Lord Jesus Christ went into the house of a man that was a publican, that was a tax collector, a despised person. But what did Zacchaeus say? He said, if I take anything from any man by false accusation, he says, I'll repay him fourfold. And the Lord said, salvation comes to this man this day. And he's not talking about eternal salvation here. He's talking about what Zacchaeus had experienced. Zacchaeus realized that he was a sinner. He wanted to see Jesus, the Lord enabled to do more than to see and the Lord enabled him to actually have a personal contact interaction in his own home with the Lord Jesus Christ. So all publicans were not like I described earlier. But there we find where publicans and sinners came near to Christ. It's always a blessing to draw nigh to Christ. James 4 and 8 says, draw nigh to God and he'll what? He'll draw nigh to thee. Uh, I imagine a lot of people was drawing nigh to the Lord last night. I know we tried to. We tried to pray for ourselves and pray for others. Uh, he says, again, draw nigh to God, and God will draw nigh to thee. And so here we find the publicans and sinners are drawing nigh to Christ to hear him. They wanted to hear him. Now, Pharisees in general didn't do this, but there was an exception even to that. You know, Nicodemus was an exception, Right? In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to the Lord by night. Now, people wonder a lot of times, why did he come at night? I think it's pretty clear. You know, the Lord could have just said Nicodemus came to Jesus. That would have read okay, wouldn't it? So why did the Lord say he came to Jesus by night? By understanding who the Pharisees were, you could understand this. It would not have looked good for Nicodemus to have come to the Lord Jesus Christ to talk to him in the daytime with other Pharisees standing around seeing him talking to Jesus, it wouldn't have went well for Nicodemus. So what did Nicodemus do? He had such a desire to see Jesus, talk to Jesus. He came at nighttime. He says, Master, we know thou art a teacher from, it's come down from, a teacher from God because no man can do the miracles I do it except God be with us. See, Nicodemus understood that and recognized that. And when you trace the life of Nicodemus, we find of course, he defended Christ in John 7. 
And then we find he was there at the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 19. And uh, this is where he joined up, you know, as, uh, in connection with Joseph Arimathea, take the body of Christ off the cross and put in Joseph's new tomb. So we have the publicans and the sinners, not the Pharisees and the scribes, but the publicans and the sinners have drawn nigh to Christ to hear him. But the Pharisees and the scribes have seen this, observed this, and they stand off at a distance witnessing this, and they criticize the Lord for receiving sinners. You know, the Lord told the Pharisees one time, he said, John the Baptist came among you neither eating nor drinking, neither one. And he says, you criticized him. And he says, the Son of Man comes among you eating and drinking, and you say, he's a wine bearer and a gluttonous man. Well, John the Baptist didn't do either one, and they criticized him for not eating and drinking. And then the Lord comes along eating and drinking. They call him a gluttonous man and a drunkard, which he was not, by the way. But then he says, they criticized him because he was the friend of sinners. Now, he was guilty of that. And I thank God I can tell you this morning that you've got a friend in Jesus Christ. As a sinner, you have a friend in the Savior. He was a friend of sinners. He was guilty of that. Thank the Lord he came to be a friend of sinners. So we find that the publicans and sinners drew nigh to him. And then when the Pharisees and the publicans looked upon him, excuse me, the Pharisees and the scribes looked upon him and made that statement, the Lord spake this parable. Now, some people want to make this three parables, and some want to make it one parable in three parts. Uh, I don't know there's any difference. <laughs> I don't know there's any difference. But the Lord spake this unto them. He said he spake a parable. It would appear to me it's probably a parable in three parts. But he spake this parable. And he says there was a sh uh, shepherd that had a hundred sheep. And one went astray, one was lost. And the shepherd went to search out for that sheep and when he, to find him. And when he found him, it says he brought him back rejoicing and called for his friends to rejoice with him and then made this statement. He says, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth than 99 just persons need no repentance. When he spoke about the 99 just persons need no repentance, he was talking about the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees are hearing this. There's a hundred sheep. There's one that strays away. Now, sheep by nature are prone to wander. Sheep by nature are prone to stray away. And this has both an eternal and timely aspect to it. We go over to Isaiah 53, verse 6. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. And when did we go astray? Well, we all went astray, that is, collectively speaking, in Adam's transgression. When Adam transgressed God's law, the entire human race fell in sin. He transgressed God's law. Therefore, the entire human race now is dead in trespass sin as a result of that behavior or action by Adam. Involved in the uh, human race is a people called God's children, God's elect, God's family, his bride, his church. They fail just like everybody else did. All we like sheep have gone astray. But 1 Peter 2, 25 and 26, uh, Peter gives us some good news about this. He says, for you all like sheep have gone astray. 
He said, now are you returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. For by his stripes ye are healed. Now the word shepherd here means in charge of or keeper of. And the word bishop means in charge of. He says, ye had gone astray, but now have been returned. Now note, he didn't say and have returned. He didn't say that. He said, have been returned. How did you return back to the Lord? How does that work out? But now you have been returned unto him, who's the shepherd and bishop of your souls. It wasn't by your works. It wasn't by your merits. It wasn't by your righteousness. It was by the grace of God, pure and simple. And so now you're in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ as your shepherd and your bishop. I want to emphasize this again. The word shepherd means keeper of. This shows eternal security. It shows uh, that we have eternal security in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is called the preservation of the saints. Why can we preach that? Well, I can give you, double, uh, give you 12 verses this morning, a dozen if I wanted to, concerning this. But this he ordained Christ. If returned unto the shepherd who is the keeper of your soul, for you to be lost, somebody's got to dethrone Jesus. Somebody's got to have more power than the Savior. Because Jesus said in John chapter 10, I know my sheep, they hear my voice, they follow me, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no man can pluck them out of my hand. Why? Because he's the keeper of the sheep. He's also the bishop of your souls, which means in charge of. If the Lord Jesus Christ is in charge of your soul, which he is, then you tell me who is going to nullify that? Who is going to work against Christ in opposition to Christ to keep that from not being the case perpetually? You have been returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls, to the keeper of your souls, to the one that's in charge of your souls. Now, if the Lord had put me in charge, you'd be in trouble. If the Lord put you in charge, I'd be in trouble, right? We'd all be in trouble. If he put anybody in charge other than himself. He didn't put Gabriel in charge. He put Michael the archangel in charge. The Lord's in charge. He's the commander-in-chief. He's in charge. He is the keeper and bishop of your souls. But in a timely sense, now notice this was a sheep that went astray. We'd like to emphasize from time to time, and I will do this later probably, that when the prodigal son left, he was a son at home, he was a son when he left, his son come back. Well, I'm going to tell you here, this is a sheep, there's a sheep who's there in the fold, he's a sheep when he got lost, he was a sheep when the shepherd went and found him and brought him back. He never was anything but a sheep. Now, the relationship between a shepherd and sheep is very unique and very special. You're not going to find anything to compare to it. See, a rancher drives cattle, but a shepherd leads sheep. There's a lot of difference between a rancher and cattle and a shepherd and sheep. And to show you what a shepherd is, a true shepherd is going to do all within his power to recover a sheep that becomes lost. When that sheep is lost, it's out of place. It's of no service. Same thing true with the other cases we'll look at. Right? So one sheep, now you might say, well, he's got 99 left. What's the big deal? Well, it's a big deal if you're a shepherd. Uh, first of all, if you were a shepherd watching sheep and you lost a sheep, it could not prove it was taken by a predator. You had to pay for it. Number two, you did not want the reputation of being a very poor shepherd. 
A shepherd will give his life. We see that illustrated in the life of David, do we not? David went after a lion one time that took a lamb out of the flock, rescued the lamb, slew the lion. One time a bear came, took a lamb out of the flock. David went after the bear, rescued the lamb, and slew the bear. Why would he risk his life against a lion and a bear if he didn't have a shepherd's heart? The kind of heart that I should have, the kind of heart that any shepherd should have, uh, see, that's why they call pastors shepherds. If you look in Ephesians chapter 4, it says he, gave, he led captivity captive, gave gifts unto men. He gave some uh, apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. The word pastor literally means shepherd. It's the only time the word pastor is used in the Bible. It means shepherd. But I'm going to just illustrate it with something very familiar to it by quoting you the 23rd Psalm. This 23rd Psalm captures what a true shepherd is all about. And it shows it in perfection by personification in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For thy rod and thy staff doth comfort me. Thou preparest a table in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Go and read Psalms 23 and substitute your name for all the personal pronouns in it. The Lord is Ronald Shepherd. The Lord leads Ronald by the, sti uh, by the still waters. The Lord maketh Ronald lie down in green pastures. The Lord restoreth Ronald's soul. The Lord prepares a table in the presence of Ronald's enemies. Ronald will not fear to walk through the valley of the shadow of death because of the rod and staff of his shepherd, so forth and so on. So just put your name in the place of all the personal pronouns. And you should see how much Jesus Christ cares for you. As the shepherd of your soul, as the keeper of your souls, the shepherd of the sheep, you'll see how much he cares for you. And that kind of feeling, that kind of care, that kind of concern and compassion should exist in the heart of a pastor of a church. So here's a hundred sheep. One goes astray. The shepherd goes after that one sheep. And notice this, until he finds it, which tells me he never gives up. Oh, I reach a point sometimes where I, I want to give up. Oh, 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 in certain situations. Oh, I, I do want to. But Karen always tells me I can't. <laughs> but not only does she tell me I can't, the Word of God teaches me that I can't. There's times that I want to. I just think, I, well, I just don't know anything else I can do, anything else I can say. It's just you know, no need to try anymore. And then after a while, I'll be doing something else. I'll try again. I'll try again. Until he finds it. And when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulder and brings it back rejoicing. There's the joy in finding. He brings it back rejoicing. And then he gets his friends together and says, rejoice with me. You know, the Bible says we to rejoice with those who rejoice, we to mourn with those that mourn. And if you have joy, don't you want other people to have joy as well? If he's bringing joy to you, uh, it, it brings joy to me to know that it's bringing joy to you. 
So he gets his friends all together, and then he makes this statement right here. Where he says, there's more joy in heaven over one, not a dozen, not ten, not five, over one sinner that repenteth. How many? One. When one sinner repenteth, there is joy in heaven. Now notice we've got joy in three different locations. You've got joy in the shepherd's heart. You've got joy felt by his friends. And you've got joy in heaven. Then he says, there was a woman that had ten pieces of silver. She lost one. Now notice you go from a hundred and one to ten and one. Now Jewish women, when they got married, wore a headband with ten pieces of silver in that headband. And when you saw somebody with that on, be like today, seeing a woman with an engagement and ring and a, and a, a, you know, a wedding band on her finger. When you see that, it symbolizes she's taken. It symbolizes she belongs to somebody else. It symbolizes she's married. All right? So to lose one of these coins in the headband would, would not be good. It would really disturb the Jewish lady who'd been married, wearing that headband, symbolized that she's a married woman. It would not be good for her to lose one of these. So what does she do? She goes, she lights a candle, and she goes through the house, and she sweeps the house. And she sweeps it diligently in an effort to find the lost coin until she finds it. When she finds the lost coin, she rejoices in that. Then she gets her friends. She says, come rejoice with me. The coin that was lost is now found. Like the shepherds say, the sheep that was lost has now been found. So now that, that flock of sheep is back to 100. That headband's back to 10. It's back where it's supposed to be. When something is lost, it's out of place. When something's lost, it's out of service. But when it's found, it's put back in place. It's put back in service. A lost sheep is no benefit or value to the shepherd. A lost coin is no value. Now, the coin itself has value, but it's no value if it's lost, right? How can you spend that which is lost? You can't. So she swept the house diligently, lit a candle, obviously darkened the house, to find that lost coin and put it back where it belongs. Now, he said there's a man who had two sons. Now this is going to be a little bit different than what we've been looking at. We looked at an animal. We looked at an inanimate object. Now we're going to look at a person. This man had two sons. And the younger son come to his father and made a request for his living. Now according to Jewish law, go back and read Deuteron in the book of Deuteronomy, you'll find that if man had two sons, the oldest son received a double portion. It's just the way it was. So here the younger son, not the older son, but the younger son has made a request for what that which he feels like was going to come to him. He could have waited till his father died. It wasn't illegal for him to do what he's doing, but it didn't show the greatest amount of love and respect that he could have had for his father. And he asked for his living. But he noticed the expression. He says, give me. Give me my living. We find where the father did that, but not only for the young son, he did also for the older son. He said he gave them, them, both of them, of his living. Now this younger son, 
after not many days, which means in a few days, this younger son is going to take all that he's got, he's going to take a journey into a far country. Now, I don't know how far that country was. In biblical days, it could have been 10 miles. That had been a far country in that day. Could have been 100 miles. I don't know. I believe this man had already visited that far country in his heart. I think that's where it all starts. It all starts right inside here. It starts when you start loving things more than you love people. It starts when you start loving things to be bought with money more than things that cannot be bought with money. You start off visiting this far place right in here to begin with, right in your heart. You know, I don't know this, but uh, I just kind of got a feeling that when travelers would come through, this younger son would try to get in conversation with them to find out where they come from and where they were going. And I imagine he told them some stories, or he heard some stories about some of these places that he'd never seen, never heard of, some of these places, how great it was, how wonderful it was, uh, all the things you could get into if you wanted to down there. You know, uh, just like today when you watch television, when you watch movies, when you read magazines, it's going to appeal to your human carnal nature how great it is, how wonderful it is to live a licentious life, how great it is, uh, you know, to drink your alcohol and this, that, and the other, one thing and another, all the things that the world promotes is going to present it to you in a very favorable light to encourage you to leave where you're at now and to go to that far country. So he goes to a far country. He takes what the father gave him and went into a far country. I don't know how much he got, but he does not receive what he expects to when he gets into the far country. Now let's just read this. Luke chapter 15, verse 13. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey to a far country... And there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land. And he began to be in want. This is not what he expected. This is not what he thought he was going to get. Now notice his resources run out. When his resources ran out, his friends left him. <laughs> when his friends left him, a famine came. Things are going downhill. <laughs> Things are going downhill, aren't they? And they're going downhill fast. I don't imagine it took him very long to spend what the Father gave him. I have no idea how much it was, but I got a feeling it was a size amount. He, he wasted it all. He didn't invest it. He wasted it all. Now, in God, the Gospel of Luke, we have several other lessons that kind of tie in here, I believe. We'll come up here to Luke chapter 9. And the Lord Jesus Christ, if any man will come unto me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, by the way, take up his cross daily, deny himself, take up his cross daily. He says, for if a man shall find his life, he shall lose it. If a man shall lose his life, he shall find it. And then what advantage is it to a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now, what do you think about, what do you think when you read something like that? That kind of sounds like a serious statement to me, doesn't you? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He said, if a man finds his life, he'll lose it. If he loses his life, he'll find it. 
That ought to tell me and you both there's two different kinds of lives here in this world. There's a kind where you walk close to the Lord, enjoy His companionship, His fellowship, fellowship with the saints of God, worship Him, serve Him, find peace, comfort, your hope is increased, your consolations increased, etc., etc. It's the kind of life Jesus talking about in Matthew 7, 13, and 14. When He says, Strays the gate and narrows the way that leads to life, and few be there that find it. But why is the gate and brawls the way that leads unto destruction, and many go in thereat? That's two different gates. Two different, uh, uh, you know, two different pictures here. Strays the gate, that's spelled S-T-R-A-I-T, no G in that. Straight is the gate, difficult is the gate, that leads in what? It leads unto life. What kind of life? A life of happiness, a life of joy, a life of peace and comfort, a life of consolation, a life of nearness with the Savior. The fellowship with the Savior is what we're talking about here. But wide is the gate and raw is the way. Now you can drive a... a, a, a 18 wheels through a wide gate, can't you? <laughs> Anybody can go through the wide gate. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. In other words, you find your life here, you lose it here. Or you lose it here and find it over here. That's what the Lord is saying. So then what advantage for a man gains the whole world? That if he goes into the wide and broad gate, gains the whole world and loses his own soul. We're not talking about heaven and hell here. We're talking about the joy and peace and comfort you can have in walking close to the Lord and losing it all. That's what we're talking about. What advantage do you have? What advantage is it to you to have a million dollars in the bank and can't sleep at night? Have a million dollars in the bank and worrying about the stock market. Having a million dollars in the bank and worrying about somebody stealing from you. And it's all you can do is fret and worry and everything else. What good is all of that? But what good is it if you've got enough just to make it from day to day, but you have a good close walk with the Lord? You see the difference? How many times in the book of Proverbs do you read where Psalmist speaks about uh, how much better you are uh, in, a, in a house of poverty with the, with the Lord than you are in the house with riches over here with contention and strife? What advantage then does a man have? He gained the whole world and yet lose his own soul. We're going to find where this younger son did not get what he expected. The world never keeps its word. The world will lie to you. The devil will lie to you every single day that you live. If you listen to him, you're going to be misled. So I got a feeling he'd talk to people that came by there, say, how are you doing? You know who you are, one thing or another. Tell me, uh, where are you being? Where are you going? You know, oh, I'm going down here to the city. I'm going down here where the bright lights are at. I'm going down here where you'd have a great time in the flesh if you want one. Oh, you can find anything you want to find down there. You can do anything you want to do down there. That's where I'm going. And that younger son thought, that's where I want to go. But I'm going to need some money. So, Dad, can you give me what you're going to give me later on in life? Can you give it to me now? <laughs> and the father said, yes, I'll give it to you. When he spent all there arose a mighty famine in that land. Now, all this is serious business. Now, not just a famine, a mighty famine. And he began to be in want. He went from here to here. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him to his fields to feed swine. <laughs> now, this is a low blow to anybody, especially a Jewish boy. 
And he would have fain filled his belly with the husk from the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. Look at everything he's lost. He had his life. He went to find himself. And in trying to find himself, he lost himself. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, you can find this word himself used by different individuals. It's usually used in a manner and way that teaches me that somebody's operating separate and apart from God. Separate and apart from God. Take a look at Luke chapter 12, verse 15. The Lord warned his disciples against covetousness. And there was this farmer. And the farmer had a bumper crop. And then the Bible says the farmer said within himself. You'll notice in everything in, this, in these verses I'm going to give you, there's never a mention of God. Never a mention of God. No mention of prayer, no mention of God. The man never talked to God about it. And if you count up all the words, it come up to 66 words. I call it the 66-word plan. <laughs> the 66-word plan. He said, I'll know what I'll do. He says, I'll just tear down the barns I got, and I'll build bigger barns, and then I can just store all this in the bigger barns, and then I can say to my soul, eat, sleep, and be merry. And that's how he had it all planned out. And the Lord said, thou fool. <laughs> he says, I shall die this day, and then who's all these things going to belong to? Called him a fool. He says, so it is of all those who are not rich toward God, who lay, up, who lay up treasure for themselves, rather, lay up treasure for themselves and are not rich toward God. This man was laying up treasure for himself. He never thought about God, never talked to God, never prayed to God. He came up with his own 66-word plan, and boom, next thing you know, he's in the ground. In Luke chapter 18, it opens up talking about a widow woman who come to an unjust judge. And she has her adversaries. She's come to the unjust judge to ask him to avenge her of her adversaries. And the Bible says, The unjust judge said within himself, Though I fear not God nor man. Now, I, I don't, I, I hope I never have to come before a judge. <laughs> but if I do for any reason whatsoever, I hope it's not one like this one. I hope it's one not like this one. This man did not fear God. He did not regard man. But this woman wouldn't take no for an answer. But all I want out of that parable is this. The unjust judge said within himself. Said within himself. A few verses later, the Lord is speaking to Pharisees one more time. As he talks to these Pharisees, he says, Christ spake this parable, or spake this unto the Pharisees who trusted in themselves. Have you ever done that? Have you ever trusted in yourself? <laughs> you know, Galatians 6.3 says, If any man think himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceiveth himself. You know what he just said there? He said you're nothing. If you think yourself you're something, he says you just deceived yourself because it's not true. In Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Paul said, I beseech you therefore by the mercy of God, present your body as living sacrifice, holy acceptance of God, which is a reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed the renewing of your mind to prove what is that good and perfect acceptable will of God. And he says, I would that every man think not more of himself than he ought to think, but every man to think soberly as God has dealt to every man a measure of grace, a measure of faith. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. 
And that's easier said than done, isn't it? We, we all know how, how easy it is to get a little exhausted, don't we? You know, we, we're successful in something, or we win a race, or we do something. Next thing you know, we're all puffed up. All puffed up. Well, we look over here in the Pharisee. He gave the lesson of the Pharisee and the public going to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee, the Bible says, prayed thus with himself. <laughs> he prayed thus with himself. It was kind of, it was interesting to me to see how many himselfs are in God, Luke's gospel alone. And I just give you two or three. There are several more. There are several more here. All right, notice what this man did. And when he came to himself, now here's the difference. The unjust judge spake within himself. The rich farmer spake within himself. The publican, or rather the Pharisees, prayed thus with himself. But this man here comes to himself. It's like he'd been in a fog. It's like he had, you know, just been in a daze for a while. And that's exactly what he was. But now he comes to himself. He's at rock bottom, and he comes to himself. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? You know what he's doing? He's now remembering just how good a father he had. He's now remembering just what a great home that he was blessed with. He's now remembering how gracious his father was, how kind his father was, how loving his father was, how the father not only loved his two sons, how the father took care of the servants. He says, the servants have got bread to eat and, and to spare. And here I am, a son. I'm in a far country. I've got nothing. I've just got nothing. Now this man's thinking like he ought to think. Uh, he's, notice what he said in verse 18. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. See, we're looking at repentance here. The, one of the main lessons in this parable is that of repentance. Now, in the book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 4, it says, The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. What leads you to repentance? The goodness of God. I hope you can see the hand of Almighty God in this. I hope you can see more than just a, a, a man, a human being in this story right here. I hope you can see how God deals with his children. And that's what the Lord is teaching here in this lesson. You see, he went down there by himself, and yet he wasn't by himself because God was still watching over him. I tell you, there's, there's people that I try to pray for, and I, I say, Lord, be with them. Lord, watch over them, take care of them. I said, I, I, I've been unsuccessful in my efforts, but I know that you're quite able. And I know that God will never forsake his children, you see. But you know, I'm not talking God causes no man to sin, my friends. You do that voluntarily, okay? This man made a deliberate decision to take his father's living. He made a deliberate decision to leave his father's home. He made a deliberate decision to be rebellious. He made a deliberate decision to leave there, rebel, show disrespect to his father, and go to a far country, and he deserved nothing but chastisement and judgment. That's what he deserved. He says, I will arise. And I will go. See, if he'd have just stayed in the same position, just thought it stayed in the same position, he'd have died in despair. But he knew too much about the father's generosity, didn't he? 
He'd had too many blessings from the Father's hand. He'd had too many experiences from a kind and loving Father. He said, I'll arise and go to my Father. will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before thee. Notice he put heaven first. I've sinned against heaven and before thee. No more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. When he left, what was his language? Give me. What's his language now? Make me. Big difference, right? You see the difference? I hope you do. There's a lot of difference between give me and make me. Okay? Just make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But he was yet a great way off. His father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. What does all that say about the father there to you? He, he was a loving, gracious father. This, this could be not just a parable of the prodigal son, but I'd rather look at it as, as a parable of a gracious father, of a merciful father. See, if God dealt with us based upon our iniquities alone without mercy and grace, where would we be today? Please tell me, where would we be today if God dealt with us only from a judicial point of view based upon our disobedience and our rebellion and our sins and our iniquities, it did not come forth, my friends, on the basis of his faithfulness and his covenant of grace, where would we be today? See, the father didn't say, I told you so. The father didn't say, well, you got what you deserve. You know, I'll think about it. I'll give me some time. I'll ponder it. Are you, think, are you really sorry? You know, uh, I play pickleball from time to time. And a pickleball player can hit a ball that barely hits the net and falls to the other side. You know, and he goes, oh, I'm sorry. With a laugh. With a smile. Uh, see, the Lord doesn't accept pickleball sorry is what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or you hit a ball, you make a great shot. And it maybe hits a person on the leg. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And you go back and just laughing back to your position to serve again. Brother Glenn knows what I'm talking about. This man is genuinely sorry. The apostle wrote to the Corinthian church. He said, Godly sorrow worked the repentance unto salvation, not to be repented thereof. This man is truly sorry. This man has seen the folly of his decisions, the folly of his life. He comes back. But before we can get the confession out, the father interrupts him. He just interrupts him. And the father's going to do what? He's going to show him how much he loves him. Says he saw him, he had compassion, ran, fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven in thy sight. No more will be called thy son. But before he can tell him to make me as one of thy servants, the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring him to the fatty calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. In other words, now, he, won't, he is happy. He's joyful. Uh, he just sees his son. He's glad to have his son back home. He's not going to tell him, I told you so, or you should have known better. Any of them kind of comments, he gives him the very best he's got, which means he is accepted back into the family. Servants didn't wear robes. They didn't wear rings. They didn't wear shoes. He did not make him a servant. He accepted right back into the family, something he always was. He was a son before he left. He was a son down there in the far country. He's a son when he came home. His relationship never did change, but his fellowship sure did, didn't it? Do you see what the boy had? you see what the boy lost? you see what the boy re re regained when he came back home? 
And you say, well, I guess his older brother was happy, wasn't he? Well, I don't have time to re read the rest of this. But I'm going to just tell you this. He was not happy. You know why he was not happy? Because he's a picture of the Pharisees again. Pharisees never happy. You can't be happy with a legalistic mind. You can't be happy with the attitude and spirit the Pharisees had. And that older brother was not happy. He was upset about the whole thing. If you read the things he said, uh, you, can, you can see where you could commend him for being a hard worker. You could commend him for not wasting what the Father gave unto him. But he was self-centered. He was arrogant. He showed no concern for a lost brother. He showed no happiness for his father. Can you imagine him not being happy for his father who now his son, his younger son, had left and not knowing what had happened to him, and he comes back home, and the father's rejoicing and so happy to see his son, and the older son has no joy whatsoever for the father and no concern for the lost son. The shepherd had joy. His friends had joy. There was joy in heaven. The woman had joy when she found the, the, the coin. Her friends had joy. He says, there's joy among the angels of heaven. Over oh, one sinner that repented. The returning son had joy. The father had joy. The only person with no joy is that self-centered, arrogant, prideful older brother. Which one of these do you want to be? The Lord gave all that to teach those proud Pharisees a lesson about pride, self-exaltation, and self-righteousness.